This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. There's just a very stark reality that employers perceive you and your capabilities very differently when you're age 45 plus, particularly when you're seeking to switch into a new career. And the perception is that older workers are less capable than younger ones. You just heard Mona Morshed. She's the founder and CEO of Generation, a nonprofit organization that provides free job training, placement, and support to people in need. In a moment, we'll hear about Generation's new study of the job market for mid-career workers in seven countries. Also, why it's advantageous for leaders to hire, retain, and retrain this cohort of employees. Mona, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. The findings in your new report suggest that people in this cohort are struggling, particularly those looking for entry-level or intermediate positions. What's the employment situation for older workers in the United States and elsewhere? So when you look at the long-term unemployed across OECD countries, what you find is that 40 to 70% of them are age 45, age 50 plus. The reality is that once you hit a certain age, it becomes much harder for you to be employed. When we surveyed people who are age 45 plus across seven countries, 63% had been unemployed for more than a year versus 36% for those who were age 18 to 34. So there's just a very stark reality that employers perceive you and your capabilities very differently when you're age 45 plus, particularly when you're seeking to switch into a new career. When this cohort struggles or faces these challenges, how does that affect the global economy? How does that affect society? What are the impacts of this form of ageism, if we want to call it that? Uh, So we should absolutely call it that. When you look at what will happen from the year 2050, you'll find that four in 10 people are actually age 50 plus. This cohort is the most educated, has the best healthcare outcomes, of any other time for this age cohort in history. For the world to not be able to take advantage of the productivity of this population, of the expertise of this population is tragic, let alone what it means for their own personal lives if they're unable to have opportunity and have financial independence. Yeah, we mentioned the term ageism. One of the more interesting paradoxical findings from the report, I think, is what hiring managers are saying about older workers and the fact that they view older workers as being less valuable as hires, and yet they speak very highly of those older workers who are currently in their organizations. What's that all about? How can those two perspectives exist simultaneously? Yes, that was one of the most strident findings in our research. We asked hiring managers, what are their perceptions of job candidates in different age brackets? So the 18 to 34, the 35 to 44, and the 45 plus. And what happened is that hiring managers, and this is now across sector, across seven countries, consistently would say that only about 15 to 18% 
of the age 45 plus candidates that they saw, did they perceive to be an actual fit for the roles for which they were hiring? So then we said, okay, now for those age 45 plus that happen to be hired, somehow managed to get through, what's their performance on the job? It turns out 87% of those individuals are performing as well, if not better than their younger peers. And 90% of them are viewed as having as long retention potential, if not more so than their younger peers. That right there, is the definition of bias. It's when you see exceptions to your perceptions, but yet the bias prevails. And that is tragic. And what was also quite stark was that this perception bias was absolutely universal across all seven countries in our sample. See, I find that point, again, fascinating. I guess I would have assumed that there would be industry-specific factors, cultural factors, geographic factors that come into play, but the findings were consistent. Absolutely consistent, and the same magnitude as well. You know, So it wasn't just that it was higher or lower, but it was the exact same magnitude. This, to me, is one of the great tragedies of what we're seeing, and this is why you know, I was joking a bit earlier when I said you know, we should call it age. We are absolutely seeing ageism. Thinking about the generation report, what are some interventions that leaders can take to bring the 45 plus worker into the fold, not just bring newer employees in, but also retaining, retraining existing older workers. So as is the case with any ism, you know, this is something that takes decades to be able to work through. We did identify a set of interventions. So in particular, it begins first with just simply understanding. If you're an employer, what is the actual performance of different demographics that you have in your company? And then ensuring that at the hiring manager level, that that fact base is also well understood. When an interview is done through a traditional CV screen, Many of the age 45 plus just automatically are getting screened out because they're not fitting the type or they're not fitting the algorithm, which is currently being used. So demonstration-based interviews is the second thing that we would really pinpoint. When you use demonstration-based interviews and whether that is sharing the portfolio that graduates have created or having them demonstrate the job task in some way instead of sitting across a table and talking about their experience, which often in some cases, if they're shifted to a new profession, they don't have relevant job experience. That's absolutely critical. In many cases, when you're switching careers, by definition, the algorithm that's currently being used in the recruiting process is often not going to find the trigger words that it's looking for because by your nature, you have a different profile, but that doesn't mean that you can't do the role. The third thing is just simply being very clear about language. You know, we would often find words like, you know, is this candidate agile enough? Is this candidate going to fit in with our culture? Is this candidate going to be savvy, right? And these are all really trigger words, which are different ways of saying this person is too old to be able to understand technology or to be able to do this or to do that. Those are biases. Those are perceptions. Find ways to test it instead of assuming it. There was another point in the generation research discussing the importance of training and the fact that a large percentage of mid-career workers need training, but many are reluctant 
to enroll in classes or to move forward with that training. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why is that? People make decisions for very rational reasons. And so when you look at who said no, 70% are struggling to make financial ends meet. About 60% had a secondary school education alone. A significant share had been unemployed for at least a year. So you take those things together. And what that says is that, you know, one, for many of them, education was not a great experience. You know, so the traditional K-12 education failed them in many ways. And so they're not rushing to go back into an experience that from their perspective was negative. Second, they need to be able to feed their families. And so one of the questions that we had asked is if you had a living stipend during the training, how would that change your perspective of engaging? And 40% said that it would. They also have concerns about, is it worth it? Is this worth my time? So if I put in the effort and am in a training for X number of months, what's the ROI of that? And so we found that 60% said that if there was a job interview or a job guarantee, then they would partake. I'm thinking about employers, there are benefits, I guess, to targeting the 45 plus worker that would also redound to the rest of your workforce. I'm imagining that's the case. Is that so or? The reality is that we must embrace an intergenerational workplace. The demographics are as such. (laughs) And I will also say, you know, youth have different biases in the workplace that they confront. You know, there's often a perspective, well, you know, this person's too young, they don't have the right level of maturity, are they really going to stick with us, etc. You know, so those biases exist in an opposite direction. Those who are age 45 plus also have a set of biases, which we just discussed. Frankly, in many ways, our youth and our mid-careers need to be able to work together in a much more integrated way to be able to change the workplace context, because no employer is going to be able to get the best out of their talent unless both youth and mid-careers are successfully working side by side with each other. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the impact of automation and how that might have been you know, part of the findings or what role that played within the research. When we look at automation and digitization, there are two effects, right? So one is there are new types of jobs being created. And conversely, there are some jobs that are no longer in as much demand. And the nature of job tasks in given professions are also changing. So what does all of that mean? If you are age 45 plus, the likelihood that you are going to have to shift to either a new role or shift to learning a whole new set of job tasks or confront the reality that the job that you had for the last 10 years is no longer going to be with us. You know, all of these things are creating pressures that lead us down the same path, which is how do we support an age 45 plus person to be able to enter an entirely new career. One of the things that really struck us is there's actually very little global programming geared towards supporting the age 45 plus for those shifting into new careers. There's also not so much research on this as well at the actual employer level, like what are the actual interventions that are necessary to change this? And at the programmatic level, there hasn't been so much. And so 
you know, again, I just say that just given the way the demographics of the world are shifting, we have got to do better to figure out now how to support this population. Otherwise, we're going to be inundated with, I'm sure the many articles you've seen as well, of the silver tsunami. You know, there is all these apocalyptic articles and reports about what's going to happen to pension, rising healthcare costs, etc. We have an opportunity to change that. But this is the moment. This is the moment where we say this matters. We're not going to neglect any longer supporting the age 45 plus to enter new careers. And we do it systematically. It sounds like this notion of the lack of global programming might be an area where we need to dig in some more. But just wondering if anything else struck you as areas for further development or more research. We really felt a strong level of despair amongst the age 45 plus, you know, so 66% of them had, com- you know, of, of those who had successfully switched careers had to compromise significantly in terms of the pay or in terms of whether it was in the sector or role that they wanted or in the work hours, et cetera. You know, and you just feel that there has been this tremendous pressure on this population. And there's a level of desperation that frankly is even higher in some cases than what we see with our youth population. And that's obviously tragic. And then if you are age 45 plus and you identify with an underrepresented community in your particular country, we found that you had to do two to three times as many interviews just to get a job offer as those who were not. And so that also is a finding that weighed on us because what's coming together is it's almost like a double whammy, if you will, of what you now have to contend with in terms of bias in the hiring process. Um, And so that again, just speaks to the importance of doing demonstration-based interviews Only about 50% of companies actually consider age to be part of their DEI strategy. So naming that age inclusion is an important part of diversity and inclusion for the strategy of the company is an immediate thing that can be done. Second is really understanding the experience and the performance of different age brackets, particularly when it comes to entry level and intermediate roles in a company. And so these are some of the things that I would really point to as things that companies anywhere in the world could start to put greater attention towards. You've mentioned this sense of despair amongst 45 plus workers. Is there more to say about that sense of despair? There is follow-up research coming next year where we'll be probing more on where we're going to take several of the phenomena that we found and go several levels deeper so that we can really identify what I'll call a suite of micro interventions that employers can undertake, that policymakers can undertake, that workforce program practitioners can undertake, because this issue is just been prone to so much neglect, unfortunately. Many of us across the world need to now be focused very heavily on what are the actual changes in programming and policy that can change the trajectory for the age 45 plus population. This has been a fascinating conversation, Mona. Thanks so much again for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. And now a story from senior partner, Eric Kutcher. Early in his career, Eric learned how to be a better leader the hard way. 
I was a, a very young manager and it was very clear I had no idea whatsoever what that meant. One of the first lessons I realized is what I thought was a good manager didn't necessarily mean that I would be a good manager towards someone else. That the way I learned and the way I wanted to be managed could be totally different. And because I was young, I was actually first asked to manage a summer associate that was probably five or six years older than I was at the moment. You know, what I had observed and seen and had worked for me was one of those things where it was a bit like when I would go to our managers and I would go almost as if I was a student to a teacher and I'd sort of present my work for the day and they would sit down and go through it and they'd hand it back to me with a series of questions and maybe if there was something that was worthy of a discussion they would do, but there were a bunch of edits and I loved it. It was a way of mixing it up. It was a way for me to learn, to see the types of things that I should have asked myself and I kind of learned from those markups. And so I had this summer associate who was, as I said, probably five years older than I was, who had no interest in being managed by someone younger, none whatsoever. And all the things that I had just thought were fantastic, she hated, like literally hated. So the first two or three interactions with her, I would be sitting in my corner of the team room. She would be sitting in hers. She would bring the pages to me. I'd sort of take them and kind of put them right in front of me and I'd sit down and start to make a bunch of edits and I'd hand them back. And she'd kind of look at me like, what the heck is this? Like, why would you think that this is actually managing? And here I was thinking like, this was gonna be the most inspiring. And, and then I got my first upward feedback and it was abysmal. I mean, just awful because I had done nothing to get to know her. I had done nothing to understand how she wanted to learn, how she wanted feedback, what would be most inspiring to her, what would give her the confidence to do better, what would make her feel like the work she was doing was appreciated. And I had made all these assumptions about what had worked for me must work for everyone. And again, because I was young, I just hadn't had that many experiences. And it was a real eye opener, right, as to how different people, different styles and how you as a leader, you as a manager really have to adapt to the people that you are managing as opposed to them adapting to you. I think that was my big aha. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks. A great one word piece of feedback that I got was plastics. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was from the movie The Graduate. I'm so sorry. Sorry, um, Lucia. That's pretty good, Roberta. Okay. Thank you.